Well, if you have your Bible, please do open with me to John chapter 10. It'll be really helpful for you to follow along in that passage as we walk down through it. As I said earlier, we commence a new series this morning that will run right through the Sundays of the Advent season. And the title of this series is Christmas According to Jesus. What Jesus has to say about his coming. We're going to look at a series of passages over the next few weeks where Jesus himself explains why he came into the world. For example, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So many different expressions Jesus used to explain Christmas. But this morning we're going to begin with John chapter 10 and really focusing on the heart of that chapter, which is in verse 10, where Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and life to the full abundant life. When I was studying theology at Bible college uh, years ago now, one of our lecturers set us a paper where we had to trace one big theme that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You could choose whatever you want, but it had to be one of those big strands that run right through Scripture. I chose to write on the theme of God as the shepherd of his people. The shepherding metaphor that runs right through Scripture. And as I studied for this paper, I was struck by just how many times we read of this metaphor that God uses so that we can think about him as a shepherd and we, his people, as sheep. From the mouth of Jacob in Genesis, for example, 48.15, Jacob said, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Makes sense in an agricultural, nomadic context for someone to look at God and look at a shepherd and say, yeah, God's that to me. To King David, who said in Psalm 23, remember David himself, a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. To the prophets who spoke of God himself coming to shepherd his people. To Jesus in John 10 saying, I am the good shepherd. To the apostle John in Revelation saying that Jesus one day will be our shepherd completely and will guide us to streams of living water. You can't help miss this strand that runs through the Bible. As I looked at all of these passages for my paper, it struck me that God really wants us to think about our relationship with him in this way. To think of it as a good shepherd who cares for and is committed to his sheep, he wants us to think about our relationship with him in that way. Why? Because with this image, 
He wants to communicate something of his posture towards us as our God. God wants us to know him in a certain way so that we experience a sense of reassurance, a sense of security, a sense of well-being like sheep under the care of a good, strong, and committed shepherd. He wants us to know that about him, that he's a good shepherd. He doesn't just want us to know it. He wants us to walk in the goodness of it. That's why Over and over again, he communicates to us through this metaphor saying, that is who I am for you, a good, committed shepherd. And how we need to know this about our God. In this fractured world, there is so much that can make us feel our vulnerability and weakness so keenly. Think about it. If you're likened to sheep this morning. Some of you might be here this morning and you are little stressed out sheep. You know sheep don't do well with stress. I remember a farmer knocking on our door in Caledon when I was young because we had a dog called Joe, a black Labrador. He's a great faithful dog. And a dog had got out among the farmer's sheep and they were all stressed and getting sick. And the farmer was angry because he thought it was our dog. Now it wasn't. At least that was my story. But it wasn't, honestly. Sheep get stressed and they don't do well. There might be some of you here this morning, you're just stressed out sheep. Pressure's everywhere and you're feeling it. You're wondering how you're going to cope with even the next few weeks. But you might not be just as stressed this morning. Here you might just be a discouraged sheep. Weary. And you just feel like it's been one thing after another and you just feel so discouraged and disheartened. There may be others and you're... You'd more be described as an uncertain sheep. You don't know what's ahead of you for sure. And whether it's your work or your health, and it just makes you feel a bit anxious. Or there might be physically sick sheep here this morning. You have medical concerns or procedures on the horizon or tests that you're waiting for results from. And it makes your heart fear. Some of you might be lonely sheep this morning. You battle that loneliness every day. Some of you might be just confused sheep or tempted to stray away sheep. Well, whatever way you would describe yourself this morning, God wants you to know something about himself and his posture towards you in this beautiful picture he uses of him being a good shepherd. And as I said... He doesn't want you to just know it in your head. He wants you to live in the goodness of the reality this metaphor points towards. You have in Christ a shepherd who is totally committed to your good. And in our passage this morning, Jesus explains that Christmas, his coming, was the ultimate demonstration of this shepherd's commitment to his sheep. We're going to see Jesus communicate that message to us by Jesus looking at this shepherd metaphor from three different angles in our passage. In each part of the passage, he draws a contrast here between those who, are, who have an interest in the sheep, but they're not out for the good of the sheep. He calls them strangers, thieves, robbers, robbers, 
hired hands in the passage. But he draws a contrast between them and him, himself. And he says, I have an interest in the sheep, but I have an interest in the sheep for their good. And that contrast is given from three different angles in three different sections of the passage so that each time, against the backdrop of the the poor carers for the sheep, we will see Jesus' shepherding care just stand out so beautifully. So let's look at each of the three sections, the three contrasts, one in turn, one at a time. Verses 1 to 6, we get the first angle on this shepherding metaphor. We see what I'm going to call the stranger contrasted with the shepherd. In this first section, Jesus introduces us to the three main characters in the whole passage. The group who have an interest in the sheep but are not looking out for their good, call them here the stranger. Then he introduces us to the shepherd who does have the best interests of the sheep at heart. And then he introduces us to the sheep. They're the three characters in view right throughout this passage. Verse 1, we meet the one I'm going to call the stranger, or better, who Jesus refers to as a stranger in verse 5 in this section. This is a person who has, in the metaphor, an interest in a flock of sheep, the flock of God's sheep. But they don't have an interest in the sheep for their own good. This stranger wants to get into the sheep so that he can lure them to follow him, so that he can literally fleece them. Sorry for the kind of play on words there. He's not interested in the flock for the flock's good. He just wants to fleece, wants to make money out of them. Jesus calls this stranger a thief and a robber in verse 1. We're told he can't go into the pen by the, the gate because the gatekeeper would recognize him, not let him in. Recognize this is a dodgy character that doesn't have the good of the sheep at heart. So this stranger has to find a sneaky way to get in among the sheep. Claiming to be a shepherd, but not with the good of the sheep in view. Now, in its context, this is a subtle indictment against the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who should have been good shepherds looking after God's people. But in chapter 9, we read of how they had turned their position into a way to exploit people for selfish gain, and they had sinister, self-centered intentions. Today, though, we could apply this in various ways. There are lots of people who want to get sheep to follow them, from the narcissistic church leader to the prosperity preacher who wants to peddle God's word for personal gain and line his pockets in the process. There are always people who are trying to get the sheep to follow them, but not for the good of the sheep. Contrasting this stranger then, Jesus introduces us to the true shepherd of the sheep in verse 2. The true shepherd doesn't have to sneak in or be deceptive to get into the sheepfold. The gatekeeper knows the true shepherd, and more importantly, the sheep know the true shepherd The shepherd's voice is familiar and reassuring to them. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, 
of the day back then as today. Middle Eastern shepherds would group their flocks together in one large enclosure throughout the night. So you could have one sort of stone wall or whatever it might be and five or six flocks in there belonging to different shepherds. It was a resourceful way to look after the sheep and then only one shepherd would have to sit at the gate and look after them through the night if needed. Each shepherd would know their sheep by name and would, in the morning, lead them out to pasture, calling them by name, have nicknames for their sheep. You could imagine how this might be. I remember seeing a video on Facebook recently where a guy had a group of about 10 dogs. I don't know if anyone's seen this video. And they, they all were trained so that they would sit and wait until this guy called each dog individually by name. And, uh, and as he called each dog, it ran and, and followed after him. And I thought, that's amazing that, that he knows them all by name and they know their own name and they know when to come when their master called. This is kind of what would have been going on. The shepherd might have looked out into the, the flock and said, um, right, white nose, come, fluffy, come, skinny, come, chunky, come, black legs, come. And they would know the shepherd, they would hear his voice, and they would trust him, knowing that they could go with him. He would follow them to a good place and not a bad place. That's the beautiful picture of what the shepherd, the good shepherd, does. Expanded on in verse 3, we read, He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Do you know that is a little summary of what Jesus has done for you if you're a Christian? Called you by name and led you to himself. Then in verse 4, we get the response of the sheep to the shepherd. And in verse 5, their response to the stranger. Verse 4, when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Then the contrast in verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. You see how the contrast is drawn so clearly. There's the stranger. The sheep don't know him. They're not confident in him. They don't follow him. And there's the shepherd. They know his voice. They're confident in him. They follow him. The point of this contrast in this first section is to show us that this good shepherd is no stranger to his sheep. In fact, he is intimately acquainted with them. To use the words of verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. Now, how's that to encourage us? Well, at the beginning, I listed there different types of sheep that might be here this morning. Stressed, discouraged, lonely. Is it not deeply encouraging to know that you have a good shepherd who knows you intimately, knows your name, knows exactly how you're feeling, knows your anxieties and your cares and your worries, knows your end from your beginning, knows how you feel. He's not impersonal, he's not distant, but he's absolutely interested in you, committed to you, absolutely committed to your good. You have a good shepherd, if you're in Christ this morning, who knows your name, who is a 
acquainted with all of your ways, and he cares. He cares about all of your cares. You don't go forward alone into the dark night in front of you. You have a shepherd who takes you by the hand and says, fear not, I am with you. That is what we are to take from this first contrast. The question we need to ask, though, as he invites us to come and follow him and trust him, are we being attentive to his voice? Well, now the second angle on this shepherd metaphor comes to us in verses 7 to 10. I'm calling this now the contrast between the stealer and the shepherd. In verse 6, we read that those listening to Jesus weren't really grasping his illustration. So in 7 to 10, he changes the lens and shifts the angle slightly on the metaphor. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, I am the door of the sheep. As shepherd, he is the watchful gatekeeper, the door into God's flock. I don't think we're to leave the idea of Jesus as a shepherd behind even in this angle. As shepherd, he's the door, the gateway in to God's flock. Now, don't miss the huge claim Jesus is making here. He is saying, I am the way that you come in to God's flock. I am the way you become one of God's people. You want to get into God's flock? You want to be considered one of God's people who are in a right relationship with him, who come under his shepherding care? You want that? You've got to come through me, Jesus is saying. That is a massive claim. John 14, 6 comes to mind, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I had a conversation yesterday out in the markets with a guy who said, but there was one guy who was a Muslim, one guy who was a Hindu uh, guy from India, from a Hindu background, and there was me uh, sitting there as a Christian. And I explained the gospel to him, and he said, well, you know, we, all our religions are just the same. You know, I follow my path, he will follow his path, you will follow your path, but in the end, we're all saying the same thing. And I, you know, you always in that moment, you sort of want to say, yeah, well, that's, you know, I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. And I said, I'm, with respect, I disagree. And cited Jesus saying, no one comes to, the, to God except through me. So it's not that you can say, well, there's that way, if we do loads of good works, we'll get to God, and there's this way, if we believe in all the right gods, we'll get to God, or this way, if we say our Hail Mary's enough, then we'll get to God. No, Jesus said there's one way, there's one door, one gate, that's me. You come to the Father through me. There is no other way. And when you think about it, of course there's not. God gets to define the terms for how we come to him. We don't define the terms. God does. And he says, this is how you will come to me. I've sent my son to die for your sins so that by faith in him, you can come and enter a right relationship with me. 
In verse 8, Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Those who came before him, Jesus here is speaking of all the false prophets and false messiahs that litter the pages of the Old Testament. Of course, there were true prophets who spoke of the one to come who would be Jesus, but there were lots of false ones. Jesus says in verse 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. That is from sin, from hell, from the consequences of our rebellion against God. You'll be saved and come in and go out and find pasture. What a beautiful picture. Jesus is saying, I'm the way to true security and to true satisfaction that is enjoyed by all the members of God's people, God's flock. And then comes this really important concluding statement in verse 10 that I want us just to sit on for a while. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is a powerful contrast right there. You know, this is actually a verse that God used to totally transform my life. Jesus says in verse 10 here again, look, there are two parties interested in the sheep. Two parties that want to get the sheep to follow them. On one side, there's a thief. This is the same person as the stranger from the first section who Jesus did refer there to as a thief and a robber. This person represents anyone or anything or any idea that offers people a way of salvation that is not Jesus. And when I speak of salvation here, we mean security and satisfaction. We're all seeking it. Everyone. Jesus said there is one party who wants to offer you security and satisfaction, but they're deceptive. They're there to steal, kill, and destroy you. You know, there are so many ways salvation is being offered in our culture today. So many ideas out there or voices saying, here's where you'll find security and satisfaction. Let me give you a rundown of the top three in our culture at the moment. Here's how you'll find security and satisfaction. Number one, self-sovereignty. Be your own boss. Get rid of the idea of God and absolute morality and you just do it your way. You be you and just go for it. Be authentic, be real. Just make up your own morality. Get rid of that idea of an authoritative, absolute lawgiver. You'll be free. That's how you'll find inner peace, security, salvation. Just do what makes you happy. Don't let anyone constrain you. And sadly, so many people follow that empty dream. And it leaves them more wrung out and broken than ever at the end of it when they realize there is no arrival. There is no security and satisfaction drinking that cup. It leaves you only inherently insecure. You have to be your own God? Well, what if you get it wrong? I have to make up my own morality? How can I bear the weight of doing that? And that's why there is so much angst, what we call existential angst out there. Second top way in our culture to find security and satisfaction, the pursuit of success. 
Get security and satisfaction through doing well, feeling good about yourself, and having other people admire you. Climb to the top of the ladder in your profession, or whatever it is. Have loads of people see you with all your money, all your power, all your prestige. That's going to give you the security and satisfaction you long for. And yet again, how many stories do we read of people who reach the top of the ladder and look into the pot of apparent gold and see it's empty and they reel back down as they fall down the ladder, discouraged and disheartened. We've all read of the celebrities who have it all. And yet their lives become so, so often a picture of, of sadness. But you don't have to be a celebrity for that. We can just go down the road and see lots of people who are pursuing success in, in simple ways and thinking it will deliver what they want, and yet they find themselves having to just live for the weekend and constantly entertain themselves as a form of escapism. And they never stop to ask the question, what is it that is deeply wrong inside of me that is driving me? What is it that I'm seeking that I don't ever seem to get? The third way that our culture says you'll find security and satisfaction is in the pursuit of stuff. We've thought of self-sovereignty, success, stuff, materialism. Getting lots of stuff, that's how you'll find satisfaction. Just keep accumulating. And yet how often, like I even think of this with the iPhone at the minute. You know, Apple bring out a new iPhone all the time. And we were thinking of you know, getting our son a, a, a phone at some point now. He's going to go to big school and we need to have a phone so that we don't freak out if he's not back on the bus and stuff like that. And I'm starting to look up these phones. And you know, you can find by these secondhand iPhone 10s. And back whenever they were launched, they were the big thing. All singing, all dancing. The iPhone 10, the, the X thing, you know, it's amazing. It does everything. And yet, you look back on it now in light of the iPhone 13 Pro. And you're like, oh, that 10 just looks so old. It looks slow. It's got a button on it, not a, not a flip screen th- or a, 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 a whatever you do, touch screen thing. You know, you look back and you just, at, at the time it looked so good, but how many of us have, have fa- fallen into it? You buy something new, it's shiny, it's exciting, it gives you, oh, that wee hit when you order on Amazon or whatever it is. And yet you use it for a little while and it's no longer exciting. It's just another thing. It doesn't deliver. You know, behind all of this, I think we're right to see the ultimate thief, robber, and destroyer as Satan. He inspires people in this world to chase things for security and satisfaction that are not God. And he laughs as these people end up wrung out, pursuing an empty pot that will never satisfy, will only end up making you a shell of what you were created to be. Jesus looks at this and says, look, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life. And not just life, abundant life. Abundant life. Here's where you will flourish. When you enter into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where human flourishing happens. Jesus here is claiming to be the answer to the question that drives every one of our lives, and that question is, how can I be happy? We are all created with a built-in longing to be at rest, to be satisfied, to be secure, to be happy. But our problem as humans, though, is that by nature... 
Though we sense this need to be secure and satisfied, it's elusive. We can't seem to get it because we seek that happiness and security in all the wrong places, in those ways that I've described above, in self-sovereignty, success, and stuff. You could add other things in there, like people saying, science today is a way that we will find security and salvation, progress. You see, we're all seeking inner rest, security, satisfaction, what the Bible calls salvation. But we look for it in all the wrong places. Well, let me be really, really clear. Jesus Christ says, claims that security, satisfaction, true shalom, life is found only in him. That is some claim to make. No wonder C.S. Lewis said he's either a lunatic or he's a liar or he's Lord. And by life, when Jesus says abundant life, that's why I've come, to, I, I, that's why I've come to give you life. He doesn't just speak, it doesn't just speak of duration of life, eternal life. He speaks of a quality of life. In John 17, 3, for example, Jesus defined eternal life like this. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's the point of this section, the point of this very powerful contrast between the stealer and the good shepherd? Jesus wants us to see that as our good shepherd, if he is our good shepherd, his commitment to us is to give us life. He wants us to know this. He doesn't want following him to be boring based on religious do's and don'ts and religious formalities. You know, for years I grew up and thought Christianity was boring, and that's the way it was supposed to be. I put on, some of you will be delighted to have heard this, I put on my suit Sunday by Sunday, and I went in and I sat, and we sang a, a, a paraphrase of Scripture and a psalm and a hymn, and the sermon was 25 minutes, and then we all filed out and went home to make sure that the chicken wasn't burnt. And I used to think, it, it's just boring. And I'd go in on Monday morning to all my rugby friends and they were going on about the great time they had on the weekend and I thought, well, man, Christianity doesn't compare to what you've got. And then on a Wednesday at night in a tent New Horizon, Korean, someone preached on this verse. And I realized, hang on, I'm completely misunderstanding this. All of the things that my friends were doing they were all in the camp of the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. They were pursuing, getting drunk on the weekend, chasing girls, all that stuff, thinking, that's going to give me life. That, getting more money, that's going to give me life. And I realized in that moment, as the Holy Spirit opened my eyes, that life leads to a dead, empty end. And Jesus' life, Jesus, what he says, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. In an instant, I became completely convinced that that was true totally changed my life. Totally transformed everything. And so from that point on, however many years ago, it was 20-something years ago now, my journey has been, what does it really mean to have abundant life in Christ? How real can it be? 
How full can it be? How close can we get to knowing God in the way he's revealed in Scripture? And honestly, nothing's changed since then. That's still the same pursuit. It's why I pick up my Bible in the morning to read it, going after life. It's why I pray. It's why I'm a pastor. It's why I do everything I do. It's why we do everything we do. C.S. Lewis says, people in this world, they're too easily pleased. Chasing after self-sovereignty, success and stuff. People are too easily pleased if that's their goal. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're not too hard to please, we're too easily pleased. The shepherd holds out life to us, eternal life, security, satisfaction found by embracing him as our Lord and Savior. And the question is, are you being attentive to his voice calling you to follow him into that life? Well, now finally and briefly, uh, we see the third contrast given in the passage. And forgive me for stretching my S's a little bit, but we've got the summer worker versus the shepherd. You'll get what I mean in a moment. Verses 11 to 18. The last section demonstrates how this, how the shepherd would give us life. And again, it puts on display the extent of the shepherd's commitment to his people. Jesus brings things to another level now, the statement in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he draws another contrast with one who doesn't really have the sheep's, the sheep, sheep's? Sheep's, I think, interest at heart. The hard hand. That's why I'm calling him the summer worker. Have in mind here the 17 or 18 year old teenager who gets a summer job. They're not really that interested in the job. They just want the pay. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This guy finds a summer job as a shepherd, thinks it'll be great, easy money, just sitting out there watching the sheep as they baa and munch on grass, but then one night sitting at the gate looking after the sheep, he hears a howl. Here's a wolf. And he gets out of there quick because he's only in it for the money. He's not there to risk his neck for these sheep. His summer little pay of minimum wage is not worth risking his life for. He runs away, Jesus says, because he doesn't really care for the sheep. And then that's the contrast against which you're to see the shepherd's care. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now here's the picture we're to draw from this. Imagine the sheep are out in pasture and wolves are coming and stalking them. And those wolves have names. Sin, condemnation, judgment, hell. 
we are vulnerable to the wolves. Imagine the wolves running in, pouncing to try and get the sheep. The hard shepherd, the summer worker, runs away because he doesn't care for the sheep. Then out of nowhere, in runs the true shepherd, who hasn't employed a little summer worker. They're his sheep, he cares for them, and he leaps in as the wolves pounce on him. They attack him, but he wrestles them down to the point where they are undone, killed, destroyed. The sheep are safe, but the shepherd is so mauled from the battle with the wolves that he dies. But he doesn't stay dead. He rises again. And so now he can stand as the good shepherd of his flock, having dealt with the wolves of sin, hell, condemnation, judgment. He has left them dead. And he rises and stands now as a good shepherd. And now his flock can know true peace, security, and satisfaction. Because the wolves are no more. And the shepherd stands over them and says, Rest well, my little flock. It is my pleasure to redeem you. You see, Jesus wants us to know this powerful contrast and image where others would run and leave you exposed. I would never run and leave you exposed. I died to save you. How could I now leave you exposed to danger? In verses 17 and 18, Jesus indicates that this Incredible mission flows from the unity of the Godhead. The Father has sent him. The Father delights in his expression of love for the flock and his expression of, expression of obedience to the Father. There were no parties in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who were not fully involved in the accomplishment of our salvation. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I laid down my life to give you life. Why did he do that? There's only one answer in this passage. Because they're my sheep and I love them. My sheep and I love them totally committed to them till death, totally committed to their well-being, total com totally committed to their experience of life. That is why the shepherd entered in to this world in the incarnation. Jesus, in his own words, I came that they may have life and abundant life. That's Christmas. It's a statement from the shepherd of the extent of his love. And don't miss verse 16, where this mission-hearted shepherd says, there are other sheep out there who he plans to bring in. When the sheep hear his voice, they will come. What a hope that gives to all of our evangelism and cross-cultural mission. Finding the sheep who will hear his voice 
and they'll come. Christ can overcome human rebellion in a moment through the power of the gospel. Now, let's just, my time is gone, so let's just step back from all of this, and let's go back to thinking about the purpose of this passage being in our Bible. More than that, let's just think of the purpose of this whole shepherding picture being in the Bible. God engages this image of his son here being the good shepherd because he wants us to know something about his posture towards us as our God. He wants you to know that at the heart of Christmas, what we are celebrating is receiving life from death through Jesus Christ. We receive security and satisfaction through Jesus Christ. We trust him for our deepest needs this Christmas. God wants you to know and to be reassured knowing that you have a shepherd who is totally committed to your good. So, let me close in this way. Discouraged sheep, he comes to you and says, do not be dismayed. I am the Lord your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Weary sheep, he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uncertain sheep, he says, let me take you by the hand. I will lead you. Anxious sheep, he says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Sick sheep with medical concerns that cause your heart to fear. As your shepherd, he says to you, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil, for I am with you. My rod and my staff, they'll comfort you. Even through our ailing, even through our frailty, our journey towards death, our journey through the mystery of death, the shepherd says, I will not leave you for a moment. I've defeated death, and I have the safe path made for you to go through. Grieving sheep, he says, I'll comfort you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You won't be alone. Overwhelmed sheep or lonely sheep or just totally confused sheep, he says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you because I, the Lord your God, am your Redeemer. The question is, are you being attentive to his voice? Do you know this shepherd in this way? How can we know him in this way? By faith. We trust this revelation. We embrace the shepherd and say, yes, I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust that he is my shepherd. Even if I don't feel it, I trust what God says, that he is my shepherd, totally committed to my care. And that, in the end, is why John has written this gospel. Do you remember in John 20, 31, he writes, These are written, these accounts of Jesus are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that may, by, by believing you may have what? Life in his name. By believing. 
by receiving this shepherd as your shepherd by faith. That's how you draw all the goodness and reassurance that God wants you to experience and walk in. He does not just want us to know that he's our shepherd. He wants us to to walk in the goodness and the assurance that that reality points to. So at the beginning of this Advent season, remember these words, I came that you may have life and life in abundance. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious revelation of the good shepherd. He's not a stranger. He's not a stealer. He's not a summer worker who doesn't care for the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That is the ultimate demonstration of the shepherd's commitment to his own. And Lord, we do pray for many of the straying sheep in and around us. We pray that this Advent season, they would hear the voice of the shepherd calling them to come and follow him and that they would come into the flock of God. Lord, we ask that you would bless this word to our hearts and lives this week and help us to respond knowing that deep assurance that we have you as our God and our shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, our closing hymn is going to reflect on the truth of Christ as our shepherd. Let's stand together as the musicians begin and we'll sing, The Lord's My Shepherd.
now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.